Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. I've always been amazed at those stories of the military hardware like the F-22. And I, and I know you, you worked on the radar systems for those uh, because they were such high-spec, low-volume pieces of technology. I mean, what, what was it like to work on those things? I mean, it's not like you're making a million of them on a production line. That... Uh, well, it was interesting, fun work. It was <laughs> challenging in that the, you know, the specs were state-of-the-art and the equipment that we needed was state-of-the-art. But uh, did they sort of have that sort of hand-built quality about them, or, or were they still? Was it just like someone made something designed for mass production, but they only just made one? It was they made for mass production, but they only made one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what were like what, what their kind of systems like? Uh, well, back in the day, this, every, was, this was the early nineties. Yeah, this was in the early nineties. So back in the day, everything was gallium arsenide. Uh, which is the state What's of that? so gallium arsenide is a state of art, state of the art uh, material that you would use for highest efficiency. So the power requirements uh, for gallium arsenide it can uh, operate much more efficiently than CMOS. Right. So you would use it. It's much more expensive technology, but you would use that for uh, state of the art specs, and so that's what we did in the military. With this sort of the cost no object. Of design. It started that way. It started as <laughs> cost no object, but you know, with anything, costs started creeping into the equation in the, the mid 90s. I'm uh, having a cup of coffee with uh, Keith Schaub, who's uh, a vice president at Advantest. And uh, you know, we, we got to meet because I've been speaking at this event for uh, really for a group of uh, the industry involved in the testing of semiconductors and, and state of the art devices. And I was fascinated because, like many industries and professions, this is one on the verge of being transformed by AI and automation. Uh, and the semiconductor industry itself is, in some ways, feels like it's awakening from a slumber. Mm -hmm. uh, with the rise of the Internet of Things and now machine learning being put on chips. Uh, well, you know, in, in your view, Keith, what, what's really been, you know, what are some of the forces that are driving transformation in the semiconductor industry? Well, definitely uh, two, two forces that I like to talk about. One is the 5G. So 5G is really going to change the way that we approach testing in general because it all must be over the air. And well, this what is, how is 5G different to 4G? Is it just faster or is there some qualitative differences in the way it works? Well, I mean, it is faster. It has wider bandwidth and, and, and things of that nature. But the testing paradigm changes because we can't do connected tests anymore. And a lot of these chips will have the actual antennas embedded in the package itself. So the only way to talk to the chip is actually to communicate over the air. What is a package? The, the the BGA right, the, package the, the, that it's the, in. The, the actual housing of the, of the chip. Yes. So the, at millimeter wave frequencies, the antenna actually becomes part of the package because wow. the antennas get so small that now it makes sense to actually just build the antenna into the package. Millimeter waves is similar to the technology they use at the airports when they scan you, right? Yes, similar. Right. So how, how is that technology different to, is that what we've been using in 4G? 
So 4G, uh, first of all, is um, lower frequency. And you know, if you open your phone, your antenna is a few inches wide or a few inches long. So uh, the, the main difference is speed, antenna length, and the fact that it's millimeter wave, which changes the technology. So there's a big difference between millimeter wave technology and uh, let's say sub six gigahertz technology. Right. And the benefit being, it's, it, obviously, you can penetrate uh, uh, physical objects much easier, as you. Well, the millimeter wave technology for 5G actually doesn't penetrate very well at all. That's one of the, the big challenges that the operators are having right now. Huh. So they're doing all of these studies because uh, historically, when you use millimeter wave technology, you do line of sight. So you take an, a, a dish antenna and you point it and you send it across that way. So what's, what's different now are the phased arrays. So now we have phased arrays that we can embed in a package which that allows the device to be much smarter and to actually look around the environment. We didn't have that before, so that's a big change. One of the things that, you know, I, I guess as a civilian looking at this was that I've been puzzled why now dedicated processors are being put into chips. So, I mean, Apple, for example, has a wireless chip now for to communicate with its headphones. Um, mm -hmm. uh, a number of manufacturers are putting machine learning capabilities I guess, on, on the edge, as they say, like in the device itself rather than the cloud. Why embed a specific process in a chip rather than have a general pro purpose process? Well, for efficiency. If you embed something that's specific, then of course it's lower power. You can get longer battery life. And anytime you're trying to do anything wireless, one of your top criteria is battery life. Right, so it's, it's really just about saving power as much as anything else. Yeah. What, you know, you can see how this is starting to change the job of someone like a test engineer. Yes. Um, that profession has been one that's been, I guess, fairly stable for, for quite some time, going back to Texas Instruments or HP. Yeah. Uh, can you describe a bit about, you know, what that job entails? And, and I guess now that we're talking more about automation and testing of chips and the design and manufacturing process. Yeah, it's so change? it's interesting. If you, if you look back historically, test engineers were domain knowledge specific. So you have an RF expert, you have a high speed signal expert, or you might have uh, an ASIC expert. And then you would have that particular chip. So it made a lot of sense why you had that domain specific engineer working on that. But then we had the advent of the SOC, or the system on a chip. So now with the SOC, you ended up taking uh, different chip technologies and embedding them in the same chip, thus the term system on a chip. So now you had RF, you had high speed, you had mixed signal, you had power management. All of that is in a chip, but that becomes a chip unto itself. So what ended up happening is you have multiple disciplines of engineers required to actually bring that into into the market or to have it uh, yeah be become a reality so now what's happening is we're bringing machine learning or artificial intelligence into the mix right. so what's going to happen there is a lot of the interaction that the test engineers are having with their with the equipment 
So the, these are very sophisticated machines. These engineers have to have domain knowledge in their respective fields, but also understand the machines. So they have to, in a sense, understand machine learning in order to be able to test the machine learning chip. Exactly. And uh, I was giving a talk today uh, around that very, very topic. And I told them, I said, you have to understand your job is going to change from becoming a test engineer to a test artist. So you're going to basically create work for the machine to employ or to execute on the, the device to get those two things to work. And you're going to interpret those results. You're going to modify those, the, those work processes. So you're going to be very much like an artist that's coordinating the discussion between a, a, a sophisticated test machine and uh, the chip itself. Tell me a bit more about what you mean by creating work. I mean, what is, what can the algorithms and the machine learning platforms do that requires the test artist to set up correctly or imaginatively? So I guess a good metaphor for that is the, what I was using in the talk, talking about a, a baseball team. Mm -hmm. So if you have two managers and one manager, his job, so both managers have the same job. They need to develop or create a baseball team out of a set of players. Right. And they both have the same players to so choose they, from. They've got to pick the best possible talent. They've got to pick the best possible talent. So this is akin to i got to pass or fail the part. So I need some criteria to pass my part or fail my part. Or I need some criteria to choose the player or to not choose the player. So what we do today is we just create a bunch of tests to run the players through. And after those players run through that, uh, those series of tests, then we pick those players and we choose them to be on the team and the others of course don't get selected. In the near future what you'll see, and this is now using the, the machine learning metaphor, is we have all this historical data on the players as they throughout their careers. Right, so like what they did at school? Yeah, so how, what they did in high school, how they did in college, how they did in the minors, how well they are with a fastball, how well they are with a, a slider or whatever. And you could actually use that data to predict uh, which players you should choose to, to be on your team without even testing hmm. the, the players. So of course you will still want to do some sort of testing after you've made that selection to at least verify your results. And that is where the artistry comes in. It's like, how will the test artist apply that knowledge to figure out what that set of, let's say, machine learning tests will be? So there's two parts to that. One is, you know, how you design the model uh, in order to have the best predictive outcomes. But the other part of that is, uh, how do you then sample and, and, and verify your results? Yes, yes. So that's that's going to be where the creative process comes in. That's the human part of it. Mm. And we were discussing that in, in the talk that that's, how, how do you do that? And I said, well, that's where your, that's where your job security comes from. <laughs> <laughs> that's where your, you know, your employment mm, is not at risk. Why is that something that itself cannot be automated? If you ask me, I think it could be automated but then it just moves you to the next level. Right. So over time, that would happen. Right, but you then, are, the, the, these people are now designing the automation protocols. Right. right. So it's just, you know, it keeps moving. And eventually, you, if you think that, okay, let's have all of that in place, and then now the AI starts 
having these rules to figure out a lot of this stuff for you, which allows you even more creativity. So I think that's just a, uh, something that will happen naturally over time. You actually ran a, a kind of a pilot of this technology. Can you, can you talk us through that like so, so we can see this in practice? So you, you actually, you, you tried this, you know, with, with wafers and, and looking at... Oh, yes. Yeah. So we tried this with a, a set of wafers where we, we took a bunch of data at the wafer level. And these wafers were 100% tested. Just, just for those who aren't semiconductor experts, just explain what a wafer is. So a wafer is a basically a frisbee, right? Or a, a plate, if you will. And if you look at it, it looks like a checkerboard. And right. each checker piece or checkerboard is, is a chip. Right. And in that form, you test it before you actually cut it up and put it into a package. Right. Because you don't want to waste time or waste material. Uh, if the part is bad the before you put it into the package. the package we spoke about before is the sort of the chip housing and the... Right. So the right. package is when you open your iPhone or your Samsung Galaxy and you see what's there. That's the actual package. Right. So the in semiconductor industry, we test at wafer and then we test again at package. Right. And we may have multiple insertions of those. So we actually may have two tests at wafer or two or three tests at package. And for to a large extent, in our industry, we are not utilizing the data uh, previously to make predictions or to make more intelligent decisions about which chips about will which fail. chips will actually fail or pass at the later stage. Right. So that's going to happen, and I think companies are implementing pilot programs of that already. So what we did is just proved that this is absolutely true <laughs> with the the recent paper that that we published. And we took a bunch of wafers that had been tested, and then we pretended that we only had, had a few samples off of that wafer to predict what the rest of the wafer would look like. And we had a 99.6% accuracy. What data were you using to, to train the machine learning algorithms on? So we were using standard uh, recursive algorithms. These are you know, published uh, algorithms that uh, the public at large has. Again, there is the artistry. You take those algorithms and you tweak them in such a way uh, for your particular application. And that's right. where a lot of the test artistry will, will start appearing in the near future. And what was the training data set? Uh, the training data set was just parametric data that is normally uh, taken uh, when, the, when the wafers are fabricated in, in the uh, uh, test fabrication houses. So, so, so the logic is, is that there are some errors that happen at different stages which you know, is being gathered by test engineers either when it's a, a wafer or a package, but they weren't being correlated you know, to, to actually... I mean, they must know... I mean, a good test engineer would, would sort of... When, when something happens, they kind of go, oh yeah, I kind of expected that. Yes. You know, because I've seen this a thousand times before, but that wasn't being aggregated at scale, is your point. Exactly. I guess to, to help understand that is, you have to understand that a lot of, even though our ecosystem is well developed, a lot of this is done at different companies at different times. So data sharing is not really in place, and it's not very easy to share data from one location, say where it's fabricated, to another location, say where it's tested in a package. Mm -hmm. Those two might be completely different companies, and their data systems don't talk to each other. So as those systems get put in place, then it's just an easy turn on the button and let the AI tell you <laughs> which ones should fail and which ones should pass. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated by this because it, it, it sort of mirrors something I've been looking at in decision making, which is the difference between deterministic and probabilistic decision making. I mean, if you're a 
a deterministic test engineer. You're just kind of looking, is this, you know, do I run a battery of tests and this will pass or fail? But if you're probabilistic, you know, who understands statistics and prediction models, you, you kind of see work in a very different way. Yes. Yeah, so today I would say to a large extent we're still uh, deterministic. We have a set of tests, we apply those. Uh, I was talking to some engineers here uh, in the hotel and they said, yeah, you know, we are the machine learning today. We do this, but it's very tedious, it's very time consuming, and yeah. it's not so accurate because it, a human cannot really uh, analyze that much data in, in over a short time period where the machine can do that in just fractions of a second. We've been living with the sort of the specter of Moore's law, you know, for quite a bit of time, and there was sort of even this belief uh, that it was going to run out a couple of years ago and, and it's sort of we you know we've somehow managed to bypass that through ingenuity yeah uh, but is it like is this is Moore's law still the main dynamic of the semiconductor industry or are we sort of moving into new directions now now that we're thinking about chips in different ways well I mean we're still making things smaller right. so we're and still things get weird at the nanometer scale, right. right and things are starting to get weird <laughs> and uh, um, but you know we haven't reached that precipice just yet. What is what is the threshold, you know, be, uh, below which things just get too spooky to, you know, to really manage? Is it like, is it seven or six? Well, nanometers? I mean, seven nanometers is is, is doable. <laughs> uh, three. Well, I'm not sure what's going to happen when we try to go to three. How, how small is three nanometers? Uh, well, we were. T I think Doug was saying today, if you take a hair out of your hair, and you split that a thousand times. That's ten nanometers, right? And, and, and we'll, <laughs> so, if you take one, and we have hair, chips today that are ten nanometers, right? right? So you have that already right. at ten nanometers. Now going to seven nanometers, of course, is you know thirty percent reduction. So that's really, really small. It's very easy to have a, we're a fault. We're, we're basically in the quantum world at that point, right? Yes, I, I mean you have a chip that is there sometimes and it's not there others or it's in two places that <laughs> so even if that's not the case so let's say we can go smaller uh, the, which we which we will and we'll find ways to, to to solve a lot of those problems the challenges become the density of transistors that you have in a given area quadruples so now if you want to apply our traditional test methods to those it's just a it's a time problem it's a cost problem you just yeah. don't have enough time to do that quantity of transistors so you have to come up with more creative innovative ways to get to the quality that you need and that's where we're talking about machine learning we're talking about system level testing talking about over-the-air testing th this applies to the design of chips as well right because in the old days you sort of needed to under you needed to understand every aspect you know, mm -hmm. the system, but now you can almost just pull components off a shelf. Yes, and, and sort of rely on that. Yes, that's uh, we we have often use that in inside our own company as a baseline because we have to realize that uh, there's a lot of off-the-shelf technology that our customers and partners can use to develop their own solutions. If our solution is comparable to that but more expensive then we're not adding value so yeah. we always are looking at that to to use as a as a baseline for for what the bar should be i've noticed there's sort of this new trend of companies making their own chips again i mean sort of it sort of went out of fashion for a while everyone was just using intel chips or you know 
ARM chips. But you, you now have had announcements from Apple and Google that they're going to basically be making their own chips. Yes. What drives a company to decide that they're at the scale of which that's important? I mean, what are they hoping to get? Well, okay, I, I'm not exactly certain why they're, why they're doing that other than, one, it's, it, it gives them control of their own destiny. Right. So a lot of these uh, companies use the same fabrication houses and it's hard to protect your IP when you do that. So right. it's hard to differentiate when you do that. So part of it is just control your own destiny. But part of it is with machine learning, if you look at what a lot of these companies are doing now, they're embedding the machine learning in the chip. So you just buy the chip and it's got the machine learning already in it. Right. So think about what that means for test and for longevity of the chip. If you take that one, two, three steps further, the chip at some point can almost just test itself. It's almost, it, it starts to approach organic, right? And if you think about the human body, we are a tester. We have systems inside of us that regulate our bodies, that test everything, and then if something gets crazy out of whack, we go to the doctor. Right. But so other so than that, the human you don't body has its autonomic systems that are they're verifying whether they're operational. Right, they're self-correcting, self-healing. You cut your finger, it heals yourself. You don't have to go get a skin graft, something like that. So only if something is catastrophic, then you need to go and, and have something extra done. Right. So the chips in the future will be like that. I don't know exactly when that is, but it's gonna come really fast. Uh, I, I know your, your CEO was talking the other day about the difference between Newman chips and neuromorphic chips. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit about that? I mean, from what I understood, Newman chips are these, you know, the traditional idea of very, al you know, uh, fixed algorithms, rules, specific processes, and neuromorphic were these kind of more spooky, self-learning, self-healing. Yeah, so if you look at Newman chips, uh, and we have tons of these today, uh, there are algorithms inside the chip. So as it goes through the testing process, for example, you'll see that it's slightly out of spec. Well, you can trim certain things, make the resistors a little shorter, make the capacitors a little more capacitive, and you bring it back in. Right. So these are structures that are embedded as part of the design and part of the test process. You can fix it. Right. So this, it's designed to do one specific thing, and it's either within range or it's not. Right. And you can move it around a little bit to, to get it into a sweet spot. This is named after John von Neumann, right? The, yeah. Right. So in, in the future, the chips will be much more dynamic in that, let's say it's out in the, in, in the field and it starts to fail for whatever reason. Could be for heat, could right. be for memory, memory ages. And the memory will be able to actually self-heal. So right now when your memory fails, you just basically go turn in your phone and get another one. There's yeah. nothing you can do about it. But in the future, the memory will have the ability to self-heal. We have rudimentary, self-healing already, but that's going to become much more prevalent uh, in the future. So you can imagine a phone that's just smart. You don't have to even know which geographic region that you're in. The phone turns on, automatically figures out uh, which standards it needs, which uh, uh, networks it, it needs to use, and it'll just be able to do that. This happens already, but you're saying that this is really just because you've got clusters of Newman chips that know to turn on and turn off. Right. So we already have, for example, there are some startups that measure the air, measure all the signals in the air, 
and don't know anything about the environment. And it can figure out, oh, these are Bluetooth signals, Wi-Fi signals, LTE signals, CDMA signals, whatnot and whatnot. So this is really important for testing. And that is, you're going to start seeing that embed itself into the chip itself. Right, so the chip almost becomes self-aware of, of its... It's a little bit scary, yeah, but it's not quite self-aware, but mm, well, pseudo-self-aware. It, it, it's not at a conscious level, but it's kind of aware of its context and can adjust accordingly. Yes. So this will have an impact on test. So what, what happens to test when the chip can test itself? and when, let's say, it can heal itself. Like the human body. Like the human body. Do you even need test anymore? So I don't think that's any time in the near future, but you could imagine a few decades away where uh, that could be the case. If you have an industry that's eventually capable of creating organic chips, as, as you were saying, the upgrade cycle and the improvement cycle doesn't sort of behave the same way anymore because these things are more resilient. Yeah. They obviously can evolve and adapt. Yeah. Um, why would you need a iPhone 20, you know, when you've have got an iPhone 18 that's essentially constantly adapting? So my, you're exactly right, but I'm thinking there, right, uh, what would be the business model, right? You don't need a new <laughs> chip. So it's features. Right. I can turn on features. And as new features come available, the architecture there all, all would already support that feature. So I can just develop new features and just right. roll those out to you. Right. And, and those, those features could be programmed or they could be as a result of machine learning algorithms, but you're essentially exposing the chip to another pattern of, um, you know, of working. Yes. There, there is some similarities already, I think, happening with this with, in audio. We were talking about this before, but you know, there's a big trend in audio towards using FPGA, field programmable gate arrays where you know if you've got a rock star designer for a DAC in a music system um, anything new he does can just be rolled out to those chips without the chips having to be swapped out yeah yeah so I'm really excited to see how the industry is going to be impacted with artificial intelligence and machine learning well, I look at it as just a huge opportunity for for our our market and our segment when you think about this 21st century test artist as you put it what are the kind of mindset or behavioral capabilities that you think would define a good one as opposed to a traditional engineer? Well, I mean, you touched on most of them in, in your talk. The, the ability or to seek out and be comfortable with uncertainty, that that is something that you desire. You want to have the uncertainty. You want there to be absurdness. Uh, <laughs> those are the sort of things that you need to be comfortable with because the complexity is so high that you will not have nice structured rules in place anymore. So you will have to have sort of an artist mentality in order to, to and, flourish. And that's terrifying for a traditional engineer. Right? Yeah, it is terrifying, so there is that. <laughs> but you know, the, this is not going to happen overnight, so it's, there's plenty of time and there'll be plenty of overlap. We'll see this happen and actually you'll probably see that you need both uh, skill sets overlapping for quite some time. Keith, it's been great talking to you. Uh, it's a fascinating area. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you very much, Mike. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www mike-walsh.com 
slash between worlds. Thank you.